Well, I look across the audience this morning, and as the old uh, preacher's joke goes, it looks like uh, maybe we've had a little bit of a membership drive today. All the members got up and drove somewhere else. But we're glad that you're here, and I hope the time we spend here together will be uh, beneficial, uplifting for all of us this morning. I just want to remind you of a familiar story from Scripture this morning. It began early one Sunday morning in the spring. Jesus was on his way walking toward Jerusalem. He stops for a moment and sends two of his disciples ahead into a nearby village with a special errand to carry out. This is how Luke records that event. Luke 19, beginning in verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Those two disciples must have wondered about those instructions. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but none of the gospel accounts ever portrayed Jesus riding on any sort of animal. He traveled up and down Palestine, and he must have walked hundreds of miles cumulatively. But aside from getting in a boat and crossing the Sea of Galilee, we never find him doing anything but walking. And now he gives this unusual request to go into this village to find a colt that hadn't been ridden yet and to bring it to him. And then on top of that, he even gives them instructions on what they're to say if someone should question them about it. They're just supposed to say, the Lord needs it. I don't know if this was prearranged. I don't know if this is you know, some sort of code like we see in in spy movies so that they know who's coming to get it? Who knows? What is known, what's obvious, is that Jesus knew exactly what he would face when he went into the city of Jerusalem. He'd been telling his disciples about it for a long time to their astonishment that he would go to Jerusalem. He'd suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and the chief priest and the elders, and that he'd be killed. So this decision to go into the city must have been one of the most difficult that he ever made. On top of that, to go into the city, riding into it in the way that he did, was an intentional fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9 Really, all of this chapter deals with it, but in particular, beginning in verse number 9, we find these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, 
and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. To do this, especially at Passover, and I see some confused looks. That's from our passage earlier from Luke. Zechariah's on there, I promise you. To do this, to ride into the city like this, especially at Passover, and think about it Passover time with the associations of the liberation of God's people there in the back of everyone's mind, was to make a very intentional statement. Jesus is king. He's the one they've been looking for. He's the one the prophets pointed to. He's the one who would redeem Israel. And yet we notice what Zacharias says in addition. He's to be a man of peace, this king. He would forsake the war horse and the chariot. He'd retire the battle bow. This is deliberately countercultural stuff. As far away from the king that they were looking for, Jesus' contemporaries, as you might imagine. But how would the people respond to that? There were people gathered there that day. Would they, would they recognize that his kingdom wasn't from this world? Would they recognize that the power that he wielded was totally unlike that of the nations, unlike that of any kingdom they'd known? He'd been trying to tell them that for the better part of three years, and they still hadn't gotten the message. Would some of them maybe just laugh at him? After all, you actually picture this, and it must have been a pretty comical sight. Here is a carpenter from Nazareth proclaiming that he's king. And on top of that, he chooses to ride in on the foal of a donkey. He, his feet might have even been dragging the ground. It's pretty ludicrous when you just visualize the scene. Some might have laughed. In these crowds that day, there would have been those whom he'd healed. There might have been those who had been among the thousands that he'd fed. There could have been those who had even had relatives of theirs raised from the dead. Definitely those who had heard him teach, heard him speak as never anyone had spoken before, heard him speak with authority. They'd all listened, and their lives had been changed. On top of that, Jesus knew, looming over all of this, like a, a monster waiting to consume him, was the shadow of the cross. And yet, in spite of all of this, Luke tells us that he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus rides down toward the gate of the city, the crowds are growing. There's a, a festive air because it's Passover. And pilgrims from far and near are flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate this most holy of Jewish days. Even before Jesus arrives, the news is spread like wildfire that he raised Lazarus from the dead. You could imagine how it would have happened. Hey, did, did you hear? You know, you know Lazarus lives over in Bethany. He was dead. He was dead for four days, been in the tomb so long that he'd started to stink. And then the teacher from Nazareth came 
And he went to the grave and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. I saw him. He came out and they stripped the grave clothes from him and he walked and he talked and he breathed and he lived again. Surely only the Messiah could do that. That news travels from person to person running ahead of him until by the time Jesus is ready to enter the city, a great crowd has gathered. In fact, the scriptures tell us there's actually two crowds. There's one coming with him along behind from Bethany. And there's another one coming out from Jerusalem to greet him. And they're waving palm fronds that they've cut, the branches there. And they're shouting out, Hosanna to the king. Hosanna means God save. This is God save the king, the equivalent to that. Excitement prevailed throughout the entire city. And as Jesus looked over that massive crowd, he must have seen a mixture of all sorts of people, all of these different faces in the crowd. There were those who loved him there. We don't know who might have been there for certain. But perhaps Bartimaeus was there, a blind man that Jesus had restored to sight, no longer in his beggar's rags. What about Zacchaeus? You remember Zacchaeus who'd climbed up in the sycamore tree to see the Lord? It's just earlier in this chapter, Luke 19. He repaid his debt to society. He was right with God, at peace with him again. Maybe Jairus' daughter was there, returned to life, and now there to praise God along with the others. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were almost certainly there because Jesus had just recently rolled the stone away from the tomb and recalled him to life. And all of these and many others that we might imagine were there, their lives reflected the love that was in their hearts, love for this man who had done so much for them, who'd molded them, taught them, who'd changed them. But there were also sinister faces there, enemies of Jesus, waiting for him to say one wrong word, to try to, to catch him in a trap. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the religious leaders of the people, they were jealous of Jesus. They felt threatened by his growing popularity. And so they waited, hoping they would have this opportunity to finally be rid of him once and for all. The Romans were also there, watchful for any hint of rebellion. In fact, you might not know this, but on that very same day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, there was another procession entering the city. One that celebrated the glory and the splendor and the power and the might of Rome. Its imperial procession with Pontius Pilate there at the head of it, riding on a war horse at a column of cavalry. We have an interesting contrast between these two processions, don't we? We have one here flexing the military and the political might of Rome. And then on the other hand, we have the humble procession of the kingdom of God. 
demonstrating its presence in a world that's dominated by force like Rome and its message of peace and meekness. See, we often forget that Jesus is very much making a political statement here. It's no coincidence that the theme of his preaching was the kingdom of God. It's no accident that one of the titles he wore was Christ, Messiah, that is, the anointed one like a king. Pilate's procession displayed not only Rome's power, but it also displayed Roman theology, Roman religion. You see, one of the titles that the emperor, first Augustus and then later Tiberius, the emperor during Jesus' adulthood, one of the titles that the emperor claimed was Dewey Filius. That means son of God. He wore that as one of his titles of rule. The emperor was regarded not just as the ruler of the world. He was regarded as divine, as a living God. And so for Rome's Jewish subjects, this imperial procession embodied not just a, a rival power, but a rival theology, a rival religion. And Jesus' procession presented a very real threat to that power, a misunderstood threat, but no less real, because Jesus was claiming that he was the rightful ruler of the world. He was claiming that he was divine. And the Romans were always watchful of even the slightest whiff of any threat to their power. Jesus listened to those voices shouting out their hosannas, but he knew those voices of love would soon be drowned out by a very different cry altogether. In a few days, probably some of those very same ones shouting out Hosanna would be shouting out, Crucify! Crucify! Or else maybe they'd just be standing on the side not saying anything at all. Now Jesus descends from the mountain. He crosses the brook toward the gate. All of these crowds thronging around him. I imagine here, like in this scene, the apostles, you can see them there, and I wonder what they must have been thinking. Maybe there's Judas there with his chest puffed out, glorying in all this, because I think Judas might have wanted an earthly kingdom more than any of the rest. Maybe there's Peter with one hand on his sword, just in case anything goes wrong. Thomas was there. Maybe he's a little bit skeptical about everything, but you remember Thomas, when Jesus said he had to go back to Jerusalem, Thomas said, well, let's go, that we might die with him. Or what about James and John? You think they were ready to see Jesus proclaimed king so that they could sit on his right hand and on his left hand and be in positions of power themselves? All of these were there in Jerusalem. Loving faces, sinister faces, anxious apostles, watchful Romans. When all of a sudden, the procession stopped abruptly. I wonder if it was like a, a traffic jam when a car up at the front hits its brakes and then everyone else does and a chain reaction and you're stopped and the people at the back are kind of looking and what, what's going on up there? Let's get a move on. But those at the front 
those nearest Jesus could see what had happened. Jesus had stopped the parade. And they looked at him, and his body began to shake. Maybe at first they thought he was laughing. After all, everyone else was laughing. This is a, a joyous day, a, a celebratory occasion. But then they saw his face. He wasn't laughing. He was crying. Scripture reveals to us that Jesus displayed strong emotion on several occasions. He got angry. We find that when he saw those who were hurting and suffering or those who were wrecked by sin, that he had compassion on people. But it only tells us two occasions when he cried. One was at the tomb of Lazarus when Mary and Martha were weeping and Jesus entered into their grief and sympathy. He wept right along with them. This is the second occasion. He looked out at the city of Jerusalem. He saw the faces of these masses of humanity that were gathered there. And he realized just how empty their lives were. They hadn't heard his message. They hadn't understood the purpose of his coming. And so Luke tells us, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. They'd missed the whole point of the message that God had brought them. And in fact, the, the very fact that they came out and greeted him with palm branches demonstrates that they didn't understand. That's exactly what they did in the second century B.C. when the Maccabees overthrew their Syrian oppressors. So it shows that they were thinking of Jesus in that same way. He was going to be a warlord like the Maccabees. He was going to overthrow the Romans. And they were saying that they were all ready to pick up a sword and a shield and join in right by his side if only he would lead them into battle against Rome. But Jesus didn't come for that purpose. Jesus came to show another way. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other one also. If someone wants your coat, give them your shirt as well. If someone tries to compel you to carry their pack a mile, go ahead and go too. And I imagine his audience must have been thinking, well, those, those are beautiful words. That's a great sentiment. But surely when he's talking about our enemies, he doesn't mean Rome. How could we possibly love Rome? 
But Jesus was saying, yes, love Rome too. Because Rome, with all of its power, the power it wields by the sword, hasn't seen the sort of power that I have. But they didn't understand Jesus. They misunderstood the whole reason for His coming, the nature of His power. They didn't receive the Messiah when He walked in their midst. And so He wept. We see this contrast of this joyous procession and of Jesus sitting here weeping. As He sits on that beast, He sees the towering temple of God silhouetted there against the sky. But he also can look down the road into the future and he sees a different picture of the armies of Titus surrounding that temple. He sees the stones being taken down one by one, the city on fire being leveled. He sees the bodies in the streets. He sees the blood running in the gutters. He sees the hundreds of thousands of people starving to death as Titus waits out the siege of Jerusalem. He sees the prisoners, as Josephus puts it, so great was their number, space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. And it's Matthew's account that adds, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, How often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not come. You see, that political statement I mentioned that Jesus was making, He did that by offering a radical alternative. The Romans ruled by force, and the Jews believed that to overthrow the Romans required force. But Jesus declared that all of that was unnecessary because He was already King. God's reign was breaking in in His life and in His ministry. And in fact, very shortly, in just a few days, He would demonstrate that in the most complete way possible with His death and His resurrection, His victory over all the powers of force and evil, the world arrayed against God. That remains no less true today. Jesus is King. And yet, we find ourselves, whether we know it or not, so often making the exact same mistakes that the Jews did. Some people, try to establish the kingdom of God by force. They try to co-opt the government to make laws that reflect the reign of God. And I don't care if you're on the right or the left, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. People think that God wants society to be ordered one way, and so they try to use force to bring that about to compel people to submit to the kingdom of God. It's the mistake of the Jews. On the other hand, sometimes people go to the opposite extreme. And they see rightly that Jesus didn't use force, that he was a king of peace. And so they withdraw from society altogether and they focus only on their little enclaves and their personal lives of holiness and piety. 
But what Jesus, the King, offers is a radical alternative. To live as God's loyal subjects in complete and total submission to Him, not depending on the world and on its ways and on its power, but still to live in the world as a witness so that people can see the power of the kingdom of God and so that they'll want to become citizens of that kingdom too. But how often have we fallen into these, one of these two traps, this false dilemma? How often have we exchanged our God-given mission as citizens of the kingdom for a pale reflection of it? You see, today, just like those in the first century in the city of Jerusalem on that spring Sunday morning, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus. I wonder what he sees when he looks into our faces. Does he see people who are so concerned about the world? Does he see people who are worried about income taxes and job security or worried about their health or health care or the lack of it? Does he see people who are so busy doing things here and there that they're not focused on those things that are eternally important? Does he see people who recognize him for who he is? The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King. When he looks into our lives, will he weep? Again, because of what he sees? Or will we know the peace that passes all understanding when he opens his outstretched arms and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If you're here this morning, whether you've never come to Him at all, I urge you to do it by turning to God in trust and faith and repentance, identifying with Jesus, His death and His resurrection and baptism. Whether that's your situation or whether you're a Christian who's wandered away at some point along the way, come and declare your allegiance to Christ the King this morning. It's His invitation while we stand and sing.